to The Art Show, the official AGDC podcast. I am your lovely hostess, Sarah Stacy, and today I am joined by a very special guest. They're all special, but I like this one a lot. <laughs> Katarina, will you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, yes, uh, my name is Katarina Ivancic. I am an actress and director. Currently, I am the theater director at Bishop Matchbuff High School. Oh, lovely. And she is also the director of a very tiny, very uh, homespun. That's a good word. Yeah, homespun production of the Shakespeare play Two Gentlemen of Verona that a group of friends are putting together. Yep, they just asked me, they're like, will you direct a Shakespeare play for us this summer? I was like, yeah, totally. I mean, that's what I've been doing all year is directing plays, and I love it, so why not? Yeah. I grew up doing theater, um, but on the usually the acting side and a little bit of the behind-the-scenes side, so I don't know a whole lot about the role of a director. And today I was wondering if we could just take some time and talk about that. Absolutely. So I also grew up just with the acting, uh, really heavy in music, I did opera, things like that. So Casual. (laughs) Casually, you know, I just did opera casually. As one does. (laughs) As one does. But it's only really in the last year and a half that I've been doing a lot of directing as I took on, as I mentioned, the role at Matchbook. Mm -hmm. Uh, So all of my experience with directing up until then was from the actress's perspective. And, but I learned from that. Every director has a very different style, a very different approach. So I was sort of able to take from all of those experiences and create my own approach to directing. Um, And then, so specifically, we're talking about directing. The director's role is to make sure the story gets from the stage to the audience in a way that is clear and enjoyable and makes that connection. Okay, so in a play, like one of Shakespeare's plays, for example, there are so many adaptations and twists. Um, how, how can each director like make a play their own when a play they like, like Shakespeare or like any other, you know, these classic stories have been told over and over and over. Like, what is, what is the goal to like identify as? Oh, this is a da 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 from so-and-so like but specifically this vision and like this thing like how do they do that so my philosophy as a director is surface the story first a hundred percent but then you find where you can play you find the moments of silence where you can create interactions with the actors uh how you develop the relationships between the characters and between the characters and the audience Mm -hmm. That's the space where you as a director put your mark. Okay. Because every play and every performance, you're going to have a slightly different performance and totally different actors. You can't have just one way of directing, in my opinion. You have to be willing to adapt and to visualize what you want in this play with the people that you have. I've met so many directors who have this vision in their head and they will mold everything to that vision rather than being open to what the actors bring and playing to their specific strengths. Mm. When you play to the strengths of your actor and to your own strengths as a director, to what you understand and how you love to experience theater. 
when you play to those strengths, that's how you put your mark on a play, in my opinion. That really sounds like that collaborative approach really allows the magic to come forth. That's That's been my experience. Uh, there are definitely two schools of directing. Yeah. There's the sort of old traditional style, which is more what I mentioned, where this is my vision, you will fit my vision. Mm. And if you don't fit my vision, I will make you fit my vision. Yeah. And they just tell you what to do. They don't tell you why you're doing it. You have to sort of figure that out on your own. And that comes with its own unique challenges and can be a, a very valuable experience as a young actress or actor. But the, the issue for me is that that sometimes kills the love for theater. Yeah. When you take that, some of the creativity and the collaboration out of it and you just have what the director wants and you're not making that connection between the actors and the director, a lot of people will walk away. Mm. And that just killed me to see that happening when you'd work with difficult directors who just don't give feedback or don't communicate well. And then people didn't really want to do theater anymore. It took the life out of it and the fun out of it. Yeah. But then I worked with a lot of really wonderful collaborative directors. And that's definitely a much uh, newer school of thought in directing. Mm -hmm. The idea that the director molds with the actors. They sort of guide the performance. That's generally how I approach each scene. I let actors do what they do first. And then... I'll give my suggestions, add some blocking, and anytime you know they put forward an idea, if it doesn't work, you want to be very clear. You don't want to just say yes to everything, because then you end up with a pushover director and then your play has no direction. It's mm. aimless, it's messy, and you don't want that either. So there's a balance between being that sort of um, overcorrective and overbearing director and just being a pushover and letting the actors do everything they want. Yeah. Actors have strong personalities. <laughs> what? That's shocking. I know. Can you hear the sarcasm in my voice? Weird. They're in theater. Huh. You would think they're just the most docile people. <laughs> <laughs> Precious. Um... So far, have you had a favorite story to direct? Or are you still discovering what your favorite stories to tell are? I, I think I'm still discovering that. I'm a very young, new director, like I said. I've only directed, this is my third production to Gentlemen of Verona. Uh, but my third production in the last year, so... A little That's unusual. a lot. Well, yeah, it's a little... <laughs> it is a lot. Uh, but, you know, I think you learn best by doing, especially mm -hmm. in theater. You can only spend so much time with textbooks in theater. There's some valuable information there. But uh, in my experience, going to sort of art school for a little bit, that was not the where I learned the most. When I was mm -hmm. on stage and having those experiences where I learned the most. But so far, I really enjoy uh, directing Shakespeare because... As long as you're true to the language and true to the characters that Shakespeare crafted, there's so much room to play. There's so much room to play physically and emotionally, and there's not a lot of settings outside of the histories. Don't, you know, come at me. I know the histories have very specific settings. Oh yes, must be this specific hill and no other hill. <laughs> Trees must be here. But the comedies are generally like a castle, a forest. So you can really play with the surroundings and there's just all of this creative room. Uh, as long as you, again, 
stay true to the story first and foremost. That's always what I'm driving home with my students. Mm. What happens when you see a story that you love and you see it done wrong? Uh, I mean, I might cry, but I'm a very overly emotional person. <laughs> uh, it hurts. Like, it sometimes physically hurts me because usually I'll have to take some time. I never want to criticize something without being able to offer some sort of constructive criticism. Okay. So it's not beneficial to say, oh, that was awful and not have any way to make it better. Even if it's just me in my apartment watching something and I'm like, I don't think that works. I will literally pause when I'm watching to like think in my head how I would have done it and how I would have improved on it before I say that doesn't work. That should be better. That is clearly not servicing the story. Okay. Um, what do you think happens to an audience and to actors when a story is done right? Oh my goodness. I think that is one of the most profound theater experiences you can have. For so many people who are in performing arts, and even people who just do it casually. Like us. Like us. <laughs> I Technically, I have a job with it, but... <laughs> but, like, this performance is incredibly casual. Oh, this amateur. performance in specific. Yeah, specifically, Two Gentlemen of Verona is very casual, which is wonderful. There's no pressure. But there's something... Magical. It sounds cheesy, but everyone who's been in a play or had the desire to do a play had that moment where they went to see something and are like, oh my goodness. Like either you're seeing yourself in the characters or something about the story or the way everything comes together just stays with you. Yeah. And it, I'm trying to think if I had like one specific moment because again I started in um, singing before I did any like straight theater mm -hmm. for a long time I was just doing opera and some musical theater but in college I did some plays and things like that I just always wanted to tell stories I think that if you can convey the story and bring the audience into that story it's honestly every performance is a once in a lifetime thing that's what I tell my students. I'm like, you get to make history. No one will ever see that performance again on that specific night with your specific performance. They'll do this play maybe hundreds and thousands of times more, but it only exists right now, unlike a movie. Which, no, you know, <laughs> shade to the movies. I love movies. I am... Maybe working on a film right now. <laughs> that may or may not be a future episode. Oh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> just, yeah, impulsive. The artistic impulse just catches me up sometimes. But that film exists in that specific way for people to see forever. Mm -hmm. It's not unique. That experience is only unique to each person once. Once. The first time you watch a movie. Exactly. Yeah. But theater, you could go see the same show several nights in a row, and you'll see those little subtle differences. The way people, especially the actors, when they react to the audience, that to me is one of the best things. When you can see the audience enjoying your show, 
and then the actors feed off of that energy and it's just fantastic especially working with teenagers in high school the first time they had that experience it was like all the light bulbs went off and they were just so excited for the next show because we were at the end of tech week if you've ever done theater you know tech week is hell week yeah <laughs> i knew she was gonna finish that for me oh, yeah <laughs> so they were tired but man the first time we had that audience in it was everything I wish there was a word for that like exchange of energy between audience and stage. It's so specific. It's a relationship. It has to be. Yeah. You don't get that relationship in it, any other performance medium. Well, maybe at a concert if you're at a mu- like a musician, like there's there's the back and forth some of that, but it's still different. Yeah. Cuz in that case the musician is playing themselves. That's true. Or at least a, a version of themselves. Yeah. Like, this is stage Gregory Allen Isaacov versus Gregory Allen Isaacov in his garden. Mm. Have I ever met Gregory Allen Isaacov? No. Do I know he has a garden? Yes. He lives in Colorado. Oh. He lives in Boulder. Oh. Yeah. He's local. That's why everyone in Colorado loves him. Oh. I've never heard of him. That's okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm so happy to meet you. Um, but, like, yes. You know, stage Taylor Swift is different from Taylor Swift in her living room with her cats. Of course. But it's still Taylor Swift. Exactly, At some yeah. level. Um, it's a slightly different persona. Yeah. But there is a gift in theater, in my mind, when you get to embody these characters and the way you make connections with the audience is because you spent the time to know these characters to understand someone else's fictional or otherwise experience. Mm. And through that understanding, you are able to make those insanely deep emotional connections with the audience. Yeah. There is such a level of almost dangerous sometimes empathy that actors mm. have to develop. Um, <laughs> the danger, of course, being when you go too far and you end up with uh, method actors and things Apparently like that. <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, there's that, yes. and there's also, if you take the role with you, you have to leave the role on the stage. Mm-hmm. We have a saying, and you probably heard it before, you leave your drama at the stage door, you leave your character on the stage. Yeah. When that doesn't happen, especially with amateur and high school productions, you end up like stage romances. Did you call them stage mances as well? I did not. It's okay. like, oh, they became the characters. Yeah, it happens a lot. It happened in every single Spider-Man really? uh, franchise. Yeah. Interesting. S- the Spidey and either, well, it was Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy or MJ. Like, huh. each of those actors, like, those pairings, like, how yeah. Having that fling. separation is really important. But also making that connection. It's a very tricky balance. Mm-hmm. And uh, the example that comes to mind is very obscure. But <laughs> uh, if anyone's familiar with Next to Normal, it's a really great musical. Are you familiar with that? I am not. Tell me more. Uh, it's fantastic. It's like a rock opera style musical. So it's almost completely sung through. It's much more modern, early 2000s than like any of the Golden Age musicals. Uh, it's very heavily focused in uh, the psychology of this family. Oh, Interesting. And the mother is like borderline schizophrenic due to like severe trauma, 
uh, and the actress who played her originally played her for like almost, I think it was almost four years on wow. Broadway. And that is a long time to play a role anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it's very unusual for an actor, but she would not let go of mm. the role. And even though it was taking a toll on her mentally and physically, and her voice was wrecked by the end, it was a very vocally heavy show. Um, so to me, that's too much. Yeah. Like, there's an attachment to your character, but you have to have the separation. And the person whose responsibility that ultimately is, aside from the actor, is also the director. How does the director, like, help create that sense of empathy, but also that sense of separation? I think by providing uh, the guidance. Because if it's all the actor, if they're making all of the decisions, it's all of sort of inside their head. It's inside their body. But as soon as the director steps in and creates that separation between the two realities, I think that's really helpful. And again, speaking from experience with teenagers, as soon as they start discovering all of these emotional connections that they can make, they'll go too far. Teenagers go too far in something? I know, it's weird. Bless their hearts. Teenagers are puppies. They're just like their commitment is incredible. You're just like, I if I had this if I had this amount of commitment with some of the people I worked with in the past, just adults, and you're just like, oh my goodness. This is what you want. You want this level of passion and curiosity and all of those things but you know being the responsible adults and director you have to make sure they're safe mm-hmm. and that's something that directors will sometimes disregard oh. and that's safety is huge in theater whether you're backstage or on stage and that's something I've tried to pride myself with as a director because I've worked with directors who overwork your actors don't have any consideration for what else is going on in their lives um, and it's just all about the show has to be great but guess what your actors are sick miserable injured your show's not going to be great anyway yeah if they're overly invested in their character it won't they won't take direction Mm. anymore and then things are going to start falling apart and the other issue with being overly invested in your character and in that empathetic connection is the more you turn inward mm-hmm. as an actor, the less you're giving to the audience. So you're feeling everything super deeply, but just because you're feeling it doesn't mean that the audience is feeling it. Right. So you're making this empathetic connection with your character, but you're leaving the audience out of it. And that's what Shakespeare does so well, is bringing the audience in with his specific style of monologues that are known as soliloquies in the Shakespearean tradition. But those are always making a connection with the audience in a way that not every play does. I've noticed that. And I think every single Shakespeare that I've read, either like in the past or in our, our current Shakespeare reading group, um, like half of the characters have a line that's just an aside to the audience. Mm-hmm. Like there is no fourth wall. And if there is, it's a very, it's a very, uh, especially if you're the Joker character in, like, if you are the fool, you're the fool, that's the word, thank you. You, There is, you break down that fourth wall, you climb over it, climb into the audience, and have the most fun. I mean, the full characters have the most fun by far. But 
yeah, all of the characters have that moment to connect with the audience. And that might have something to do with sort of just the nature of theater at the time, because there wasn't a lot of separation between the audience and the actors at the time. Literally, physically. Physically. As well as, um, it was just becoming a thing during Shakespeare's time that people did theater, did performance arts full-time, unless they were sort of, you know, of the debaucherous sort. You know, it would be a really cool episode if we could dive into, like, the history of theater sometime. I would love to do that. I'd be super down. I teach a class on the history of theater, so... It'd be so much fun. Like, everything from, you know, I want to say modern vaudeville, but vaudeville isn't modern anymore, to, (laughs) um, you know, just rambling theater circus troops yeah middle ages and yeah oh yeah the stuff that came up with the middle ages was super interesting because at chaucer. that time chaucer well there's chaucer chaucer yeah. ish it's not quite theater it's close why was i thinking chaucer oh in high school short stories <laughs> short stories yeah he wrote short stories in, in high school i did um Jeffrey Chaucer's Flying Circus, which is like a Monty Python interpretation. Of the, yeah. Yes. I am familiar with that. Which was hilarious. Oh, I'm sure. They are over the top and fantastic in their own right. But yes, he was not a playwright. Yes. Just thinking of someone else. No worries. But, but yeah, Middle Ages, the way they used theater was super unique for the time. I don't know if we want to go into that at all right now, or we can save that for a later episode, or I can give you a little sneak peek. Yeah, let's do sneak peek. All right, so... Sneak peeks are fun. uh, (laughs) Something really fantastic about theater in the Middle Ages was that it was not only just a form of entertainment, it was also a form of communication and education. Education being the primary focus of theater Mm -hmm. because there was such a low literacy rate and books were not being published they were being handwritten by monks for the most part and very few people in society would have access to them so the way people would learn the faith and learn their history was through plays that were put on in the streets Uh, there were three different categories of the plays there were miracle plays morality plays and allegories so can you tell us a little bit about each of those three yes, types? Absolutely. So you've got your miracle plays, which are uh, stories of the saints. Yes. So getting your faith and understanding who came before, who laid the foundations for your faith in that sense. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your morality plays. Oh, I'm sorry. Mystery plays. I'm getting all my ums mixed up. <gasps> Lay gasp. How dare your brain. <laughs> So it's miracle, mystery, and morality. My students will completely roast me if they hear me because I make them memorize all this. It's okay. No one listens to this. Okay, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So your mystery plays are your biblical plays. So that's how they would learn the Bible stories. And then your morality plays are heavy allegory, like just the most blatant allegory. One of the best known um, morality plays of that time is called Everyman. And every man encounters different things on his journey to the afterlife. Um, but everything he encounters is... So he encounters like different virtues and vices, and they're just named. 
just like, ah, here's Faith coming down the road. It's like, there's no veil. It's very clear about what this is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm guessing uh, the more popular ones were the ones that were better written. Probably, but also you've got to figure that entertainment wasn't widely available, so I'm sure people weren't too picky at the time. Yeah. But it's interesting to see the way that theater has, the way it started sort of, um, as far as we know, we talk mostly about like Greek and Roman theater as the origins of theater, the origins of the term thespian, all of that came from Greek theater. Uh, and that was like highly competitive, like the way they wrote plays, but it was also very stagnant. Like there wasn't a lot of movement, there weren't a lot of characters or character development necessarily, mm. but sort of all of the uh, buds of those ideas that later developed through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and everything began there. And very clearly, you can sort of watch the progression. Um, but it was sort of its own profession and very highly respected in Greek theater. So it sort of had a, a downward tread uh, <laughs> of respectability. Of respectability. <laughs> yes. I like to think we're on the upswing, but you know, there are days when I see things and I'm just like, why, why are we making that into, into a play or a musical? Whose idea was this? Okay, if Sharknado can get made five times, though, like, you can throw an idea out there and see what sticks. They made a Spongebob musical. Why? That's my question. Well, okay. Lots of people like Spongebob. I am not one of them. Nope, me neither. It's just not my style of humor, personally. And it was just... Oh, such just a grab bag. It was just so clear what they're pandering to it just lacked sort of the artistic originality integrity integrity, all of those (laughs) things that you want in a musical ah deeply tragic yes I had a really good question and then I lost it oh no worries Mm. tell me more about your favorite things to do in a play my favorite things to do in a play well uh, I guess from a director's perspective my favorite things to do in the play are creating moments of physical comedy and stage combat those are like two of my favorite things as a director so physical comedy is fantastic because it's again one of those opportunities to play to your actor's strengths so if you have very athletic actor you can do some really fun things if your actor is tall and gangly you can exploit that sort of in a way that plays for laughs and you can mold the comedy to who you have and I think that uh, process is just so much fun and so collaborative and one of my favorite things and then stage combat is just Right, it's such a good time. I love choreographing stage combat. Uh, I brought in a choreographer for the first time we did stage combat because I did not have confidence that I could teach teenagers to wield swords without hitting each other. Did they hit each other anyway, though? So 
technically not only once and it was the boys i know i was very surprised and it was only because they always refused to do their fight call and they just would get closer and closer to each other and they got more and more intense and their fight was supposed to be a little bit lighter so i had to always bring them back because the girls were supposed to have like the really knockout drag down kind of fight uh, it like evolved. It was went from like a sword fight into a cat fight. It was Midsummer Night's Dream for context. Uh. So, but that was so much fun. Like they had a blast, and then I learned a lot from that experience. So going forward into West Side Story, which was our spring musical, uh, just as a note to directors, maybe don't do West Side Story as the first musical you ever direct. <laughs> You'll learn a lot, but you won't sleep. <laughs> And you will need, like, a good month of recovery and probably a massage. Yeah, cat. Yes. It's West Side Story. I know. I did it. It's Steven Spielberg just did it. It was great. He's professional. It was so good. He did a great job. <laughs> uh, so, we did a lot of fight work in West Side Story. There's a fight, like, every other scene. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I love it because you use fight choreography the same way you use dance in a show, whether it's a musical or a play. You use it to continue to tell the story, to give information about the characters. Whoever is the aggressor in the fight has a reason. Maybe it's part of their personality and you want to highlight it that way. So you've had them sort of as a more aggressive character physically throughout the show, and then your audience isn't surprised Mm. when they take that more aggressive role or maybe you want to flip the script a little bit and you have a character that's very demure that hits their breaking point and they become the aggressor in the fight and then you have a moment of character development for better or for worse (laughs) but as long as the fight is not there to stall the story and just be like a shiny piece of action yeah i feel like that happens a lot in in theater and in film. I, I can't... I haven't seen a lot of stage combat in person. Most of my stage combat uh, viewing has probably been online. But definitely in movies. Yeah. There will just be like these flashy action set pieces. And they don't really further the story. They're just there to be impressive. Yeah. So I would say only, only do the stage combat if handle it and it's going to not going to distract from your story if yep. it is further developing your characters and your audience's connection with the story yeah you as you're describing stage combat the scene that comes to mind for me is um the greatest sword fight of all time from Prin- princess bride princess bride <laughs> um it's so good it's so good because it the is. actors um they did the entire sword fight themselves, mm-hmm. except for the flip. Like, that was the only thing that the, the stuntman stunt did. came in. Yeah. Yeah. They worked on it for months, though. For months. And then, like, they started filming, and they were like, wait, we need to make this longer. Yeah. And they it were was like, too short. It was like two weeks. They had it stretched out. They had the, the blocking, the 
and the collaboration between like the fight director and the actors mm -hmm. and the film director and just created the greatest sword fight of all time. And it's so grounded in both of the characters. You yes. learn so much about Anigo Mantoya and the man in Wesley, black. the man in black. Spoilers. Ah. <laughs> if that's a spoiler for you, I will hunt you down and make you watch the movie. A second it, yes, a hundred percent. But you learn so much about that they're both gentlemen. You learn about Inigo uh, Montoya's motivations mm -hmm. through the fight. It is yes. all happening in the fight, and you learn about their strengths. And so later on, it makes sense when they're fighting and when they're storming the castle. <laughs> <laughs> You're not surprised, and it doesn't feel like these characters were just given these abilities out of plot convenience. Right. It's like, these characters have like clearly established that they are, in fact, experts in sword fighting. For two entirely different reasons. Anigo is motivated by revenge and has been training for 20 years? Yeah, decades. And Wesley was taught by a pirate. <laughs> Multiple pirates! Multiple pirates! Yes! He's been on a pirate ship for the last several years, so... Yeah. Uh, having it grounded in your story, in your characters, that's like one of the best examples of that. Uh, there's a great breakdown. Jill Barrup on YouTube does amazing fight choreography breakdowns. So far she hasn't done any for plays. She really is focused on films overall, but yeah. if you're interested in that, I highly recommend her you YouTube that channel. Uh, Barrup, B-E-A-R-U-P. Thank you. She is an actor combatant she's British, so. Oh, delightful. Yeah. Always nicer to listen to. Because <laughs> we're American. I can't be the only one who thinks that, right? No. No, it's because we're American and accents are just like, oh, shiny. Yeah. You're not wrong. But for your ears. Yes. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate you. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> mm. So, you mentioned earlier something about creative juices and creative inspiration striking mm. when you were talking about your uh, your forthcoming film project yes what what do you think that thing is that drives us to create other creators other creators absolutely without a doubt whenever i am in like a creative dry spell which not to brag, it doesn't happen very often, which sounds like a good thing, but it really isn't. It's exhausting. I have so many ideas constantly, and I'm like, I need to just focus on the one. Can the rest just hang out in the corner for a minute while I finish this one? Um, that generally doesn't work, but no. <laughs> I do my best. Uh, but whenever I am in a creative dry spell, there's something that's blocking whatever. It's stress, it's life, it's something. Reading good work, watching good work, going out and seeing a show, talking to other artists will always spark that desire and that creativity back. Art begets art is always something that I 100% believe. Mm. Because you make something, someone else sees it and gets inspired to make something and it is this continuous glorious cycle like usually when you're talking about cycles you're talking about you know bad cycles things that are cyclic are generally when you're talking about them are more of a negative connotation you know cycles of abuse and things like that but art has this unique quality that makes it this positive cycle almost like a more not 
more natural in the sense of nature, but like the mm. cycles of renewal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially in, I would talk all about, about musical theater because that's where my my deepest passions lie. Uh, musical theater has a really rich tradition of sort of like the mentorship, internship kind of deal with the great directors of the time. So Rodgers and Hammerstein are some of, considered to be some of the greatest composers and lyricists of all time. Their plays, their musicals are very timeless and are continued to be put on probably from now until forever. I can't foresee any time when you wouldn't put them on. Um, And they worked with and helped train Stephen Sondheim. Mm Mm-hmm. He was their uh, mentee, intern, all of that. And likewise, Stephen Sondheim worked with Jonathan Larson, who burst the pop and rock uh, musicals in the late 90s. And that became a whole new genre and a whole new way of looking at theater. Uh, while I don't agree with Jonathan Larson's decisions and opinions on everything, what he innovated revived musical theater and Broadway for a new generation. Yeah. And then... You should know that name because of Tick, Tick, Boom and Andrew Garfield. Yes. Which was absolutely fantastic. Shamefully, I have yet to actually see it. It's a, I know it's a crime. I've I've just not You are going any, to artist jail. I've not had... Jail the, for Katarina for a thousand years. years. I have not had the emotional capacity for a while to deal with watching that by myself. And I also didn't want to make my boyfriend watch it with me. You should absolutely make your boyfriend watch it with you. I will force you to watch it he in to five seconds. He came to see show twice. He came to see West... Teenagers put on West Side Story for two hours for two nights in a row. So I thought, you know... Alright, that's very sweet of him. Yes. No, he's absolutely amazing. I love him so much, but... Uh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> no, it's not he knows. the first time she said that. He knows. But... Uh, so, yes. <laughs> Not seen it yet. It is on my very close to-do list. Uh, yeah. yeah. Jonathan Larson... Oh, continuing that line of tradition. Jonathan Larson heavily inspired and Lynn, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who you are also probably familiar with from Hamilton. And every other Disney movie these days. He went and saw the... Uh, one of Larson's original workshops mm. in New York City, and that is what sparked him. And there was, there were conversations there, and that connection made. Uh, of course, if you're familiar with Jonathan Larson or with Tick Tick Boom, you know that his life was tragically cut short. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, you know, a pretty firm belief that that sort of mentorship would have continued. Yeah. into that next generation and it's exciting to see what happens next who will be that next innovator in the genre yeah. I hope the tradition continues I think art is one of those few no I can't even say that I think art is one of the best expressions of that apprenticeship mentorship model where like things have to be passed down like within yes. the context of community Absolutely. Like, we can get that in, like, you know, architecture, engineering. Like, you you want, you know, pat, like, the past generation to inform the new generation. And you want the new generation to, like, be the innovators of, like, how things can change and grow. But, like, 
art, like theater especially, I think is such a living, breathing thing because it involves human beings in every yes. level. It is, art is human and art has to be human to human. If you're making art in a vacuum, it won't last very long for you personally, in my opinion. You have to share it in some way. And I think that's why um, social media has become such a huge platform for artists in so many ways, for better or for worse, because it is that way of sharing your Mm -hmm. art when you're creating in a vacuum, when you don't have a community of artists to collaborate with and bounce ideas off of. You need somewhere to put it. If it lives in a notebook on your desk, Mm -hmm. it's dead. But the second you put it out on the internet, you hit publish, it's there and it's alive and someone else can read the thing that you wrote. It's also terrifying. Oh, it's absolutely terrifying. Like, can you imagine someone reading the thing that you wrote? The thing that lived in your brain? Yes. It's horrible. It's horrible and wonderful all at once. I wrote far too much fanfiction in high school. (laughs) But did it teach you how to write? Absolutely. It taught me so much about how to write. I felt far more prepared in so many ways um, for college. (laughs) Which is maybe not how you would think of uh, fanfiction. You know, it's just a for fun thing. Definitely a form of creative expression. Maybe not always with the best connotations, but (laughs) you do learn how to communicate with an audience, especially because a lot of times you have feedback from people in your comments section, so things they liked, things they didn't like, you take it all with a grain of salt, but... Or a pound. Or a pound. Yeah. Depending on what part of the internet you're on. Right. I think fan fiction, like Shakespeare, is one of those areas that you can play in because... These characters have been set for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been interpreted by so many people that there are sort of standards of how how to present the story. Absolutely. Uh, And the best part of that is you have an audience, people are going to pick up a fan fiction because they're already invested in the story. Right. Which is the hardest part about theater is those first few seconds when you have the curtains open and... Either it starts with silence, it starts with music, it starts with dialogue. But if your audience doesn't get invested in the story, it's like the first page of a book, the first scene of a movie. It's it's like oh that man. moment when you might lose them. Right. It's so how hook. do you hook them? Exactly. Whereas fan fiction, there's some aspect of that, but they already are invested in these characters, invested in this story. Right. They did their little search of the tags, so they probably know what genre. As long as you tagged it right, come on, don't be that person. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We've all picked up a fan fiction. Thing. Like, oh, this is not what I thought it was. No. Putting you down now. I was here for comedy, and I am sad now. You gave me angst. Yes. <laughs> With no happy ending. Tag your fix. <laughs> That's the takeaway line from this episode, folks. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not the takeaway line. <sighs> All right. Um, this has been such a fun conversation about storytelling. Thank you so much for joining me. I really Absolutely. appreciate your time. Thank you. Um, yeah, I look forward to having you on again to talk about more theater and more storytelling. Sounds and good. More art. 
it's stuck with me now. <laughs> Excellent. I'll be back. <laughs> that is a threat, folks. Mm. <laughs> you really get me started on musical theater or pretty much any art form or how like the different art forms interact. I can go for hours. Don't worry. We'll let you sleep now. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Again, I have been your lovely hostess, Sarah Stacy, and this has been The Art Show. Take care.